Good morning. What a great song, right? What a great transition from last week in Ephesians. So we've been going through the book of Ephesians, and we've been encouraging you to read through the book. And hopefully as you read through the book over and over again, you'll find that you're gaining more and more understanding of this glorious book about his body, the church. Before we open up the word, let's, let's go to the Lord one more time in prayer. Father, life is full of distractions, and we are tempted to allow those to cloud our mind. Father, help us to focus on you. Help us to continue the worship as we open the word and we consider how you would change each one of us today. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to obey. I pray this in Jesus' name. Yeah, so we just finished up a kind of a short little series in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. And in that section, we learned that our triune God role in salvation causes us to worship. We have the Father who chose and adopted us as sons. We have the Son, Jesus, who achieved our redemption and heads up this thing called the church and we have the spirit who guarantees our future inheritance and those things cause us to live lives of worship now we're going to transition now to um, one of Paul's prayers uh, in this book he has several there's kind of a dilemma when you come across a prayer when you're when you're deciding whether to teach it or preach it because you're not quite sure how to do that so some prayers in the New Testament are actually models for us to pray. So, for example, as some would call it the, the Lord's Prayer, others would call it the Disciples' Prayer. That's a model for us to follow. Not, not something just to repeat, but a model for us to follow when we pray. And some might be tempted to say, okay, this, in this text, this is just a, mo- not just, but a model prayer for us to, for us to look at and, and use when we decide uh, how and when and what we pray. But I, but I agree with a lot of the commentators that as, as they've studied Paul's prayers in particular at the beginning of his epistles, they do more than just give us a model for prayer, although they can function that way. They actually give us information. Uh, they both function as a prayer of Paul for his readers, but they actually give us information about what he wants us to understand about the book. So, for example, if Paul is praying in Ephesians or excuse me, in Philippians, he's actually previewing some of the things he's going to talk about in the book. And the same thing happens here in the book of Ephesians, verses 1, 15, through the end of the chapter. Paul's actually going to pray, and in it he's going to give us some insight, but primarily he's going to pray for us as his readers, prays for his original readers to gain the insight and then actually gives us the actual insight he's praying for us to understand. It's kind of an interesting thing, right? So what we're going to learn today is we're going to learn that God has three insights for us to learn through the book of Ephesians. And Paul's going to pray for those insights. Now it's going to take me a second 
for a few minutes to get to those three insights. Because first I want to make some observations um, getting to the second part of the text. And then I actually want to talk about what spiritual insight is from, um, from this text and from the book of, of 1 Corinthians as well. Then we'll get to our main three insights that are the focus of Paul's prayer. So let's do this. Let's read through the text and we will then jump right in. So he says this in verse 15. Therefore, on account of this, I also, after hearing of each of your faith in the Lord Jesus and the love which you have towards the saints, towards all the saints, excuse me, I do not cease giving thanks on your behalf, making mention of you in my prayers in order that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, might give to us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your heart having been enlightened so that we might know, that you might know who is, what is, excuse me, the hope of his calling, what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the overabundant greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of the power of his might. Now, I'm going to stop reading there, and we'll finish reading the rest of the chapter in a moment. So just a couple of observations before we get to kind of the main idea today. First, Paul is actually praying with intimate knowledge of this church. So it's hard to see in the English, but the first phrase that you come across in there that he says, after hearing of your faith, the the construction there grammatically is actually saying, I'm praying and I'm grateful for each one of your faith, for the faith of each one of you if that makes sense. So Paul has this intimate knowledge of the people he's writing to, and he says, I know of your faith and your love, and I can think of you each individually when I, when I pray and when I think about this. And I think effective prayer really does come through knowing who and what you're praying for and the people that you pray for. And I think that's something for us to learn as we try to live our Christian lives and try to be leaders in whatever capacity God's called us to be. A second observation. Um, Last week I mentioned that there's some conflict going on in this church. right? And yet, what does he say in verse 15 and 16? He says, I know of each one of your love for the saints. So even though there's this conflict going on in the church, Paul acknowledges that they fundamentally love each other. So I think that's a good reminder to us that even though we have our, each one of us have our own sets of problems, that we can be on the right track and still have these smaller struggles that we're dealing with. And I think from one perspective, it's good for us who maybe we think we've arrived Maybe we think we've grown and we've we've become fairly mature. It's a good reminder that we're all going to have little struggles along the way. So that Paul can say, look, I I look at this church and I see that you love each other. But I also see in the same vein that you have these small struggles along the way. And as a spiritual leader, as the apostle writing back to this church, he wants to see them continue to grow, continue to grow, and continue to grow. One observation I've met is the longer I'm in the Christian life and the more I seem to grow the more I realize I fail. And there's this weird contradiction. The more you mature as a believer, 
the more you're going to realize all the ways that you feel like you're failing God. And that's, that's not an unhealthy thing, I think, because it keeps us humble, keeps us seeking God, and keeps us leaning on him. So those were just a couple of observations. So let's look, let's look now at the text where he, Paul's going to talk to us about three specific spiritual insights that he's going to give us. But I, but I think it's really interesting because what is a spiritual insight? You think, well, that's obvious. Okay, what's knowledge? What does it mean to know God? What does it mean to know God? That's a harder question to answer than, than it might seem at first, right? So I'll give you an example from my life. Um, my car is in the shop. Yeah, two days ago, the battery light came on as I'm driving. So I'm driving and the battery light comes on. And I know what that means. I know I need to get to the shop. <laughs> and I know it's probably my alternator or my battery. Okay? So I know my car. But do I really know my car? Now, let's talk, when I call the mechanic on Monday, now I'm talking to someone who knows my car, right? What's the difference? He has a true working, get your hands in there and get messy kind of a knowledge, right? And, and even another kind of a knowledge might be an engineer's knowledge of that car. So an engineer might have a way deeper understanding of what an alternator does internally. A mechanic may or may not know how an alternator works, but an engineer who designed the whole car is gonna know how every piece fits together, do you see? And so there's kind of levels of knowledge, and when, so when, God, when, when Paul talks about gaining insight, he's wanting us to grow in that level of knowledge. He wants us to go beyond Dave knows his alternator needs fixing knowledge to more like a mechanic or an engineer's knowledge so that we have an intimate working ability or working um, knowledge of, of God and our relationship to him. And then there's another piece, right? There's another piece to knowledge, which is beyond the, because even that's more of a head kind of a knowledge, although mechanics know how to work with it. But there's an element of knowledge that's relational, right? So when, when Adam knew Eve and had a son, that shows you that the word knowledge has some sort of a relational component to it. Right? And so there's kind of a relational knowledge. So you may think you know Joanna, my wife, but you don't know Joanna like I know Joanna. Just purely from the fact that a poor woman's had to put up with me for over 30 years. Right? And so nobody in this room knows me like Joanna knows me. And nobody knows Joanna in this room like I know Joanna. So there's this relational component that God wants us to gain as we work through this book of Ephesians, we work through our Christian life. And that's the kind of insight that Paul wants to give us. Paul wants to give us a relational, intimate knowledge of God. And he's praying for that for us. So he says in verse 16, he says this, I do not cease giving thanks on your behalf making mention of you in my prayers in order that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, might give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and in knowledge of him. Now, just real quick, one more observation. Do you notice the Trinitarian formula in there that Paul prays? And he prays that the Father 
of our Lord Jesus Christ might give us a spirit of wisdom. Right, just like in the first big chunk that we looked at last week, there is a Trinitarian emphasis in this book. And that's something that we can't give up as believers in Christ. That's a doctrinal issue that we would call a fundamental of the faith. That's something that you have to continue to embrace. All right, but look at verse 18 with me. He says this, the eyes of your heart having been enlightened so that you might know what is the hope of his calling and what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. So he says the eyes of your heart being enlightened. So there's this insight. It's as if you have these physical eyes to see the physical world, but we have this metaphorical spiritual set of eyes in our heart. And this really explains why As a Christian, you're always going to be a little bit at odds philosophically and in thinking with those around us who are not believers. Because we have this thing called spiritual insight. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says this, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So as you walk through life as a Christian, you cannot expect to have people agree with everything you believe. Did you catch what that text said? To those who are perishing, it's foolishness. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Let's go on a little bit further in 1 Corinthians. Where 1 Corinthians 1, 19 through 25 says this. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for a sign And Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Truth. When we walk through this world and we try to live and represent God to the world, there are going to be many who think that we are fools. And that's okay. We continue to love them. We continue to love them. We continue to reach out to them. We continue to show Jesus love. But we have to realize that as we walk through the world and as we're seeking to strive, as we're seeking to please God, that's going to come back and people are going to go, you're crazy. You're absolutely crazy. We say, well, why is it that they can't? Why is it that they can't understand? Because I'll be honest, I've actually met some really interesting biblical scholars who would say, I am not a Christian, but I study the Bible as a scholarly pursuit. And let me tell you, they know the Bible really, really well. And they can tell, they can tell you that this prayer means exactly what I said it means. So what does it mean by understanding there? Because I've seen people who would, who would tell you straight to your face, I know what it says, I just don't believe it. 
Well, 1 Corinthians actually 2, chapters 2, verses 12 through 14 helps us understand that. He says this, Paul, in 1 Corinthians. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Verse 14, really crucial. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So when Paul says they can't understand them, he doesn't mean that they don't know what the words say. He's saying they can't grasp it at the level of, I get it. Right? Did you ever talk to someone and you go, hey, when you do this, you come across this way? And they're like, no, I don't. And you walk away, and what do you say? They just don't get it. They understand what you're saying, they just don't agree with you. And notice what he says in the very last phrase there. Those things are spiritually appraised. Anybody an appraiser in here? Any, do we have any appraisers in our church? What does an appraiser do? What's an appraiser do? Yeah, they attach value to something. They tell you something is valuable, how valuable it is or not. So something that is spiritually appraised, it's a natural person who does not have the spirit of God in their life, sees something, reads something. They may understand what you mean by it, but it's spiritually appraised and they go, nope, not worth anything. Ergo, they can't understand. That's what Paul's talking about. So spiritual insight, going back to our text, Spiritual insight, then, is the result of us being given a spirit, the spirit of God, who then changes how we evaluate what we learn and read and hear about from the scriptures, and then gives us the capacity not only to accept it, but then to understand how it applies to our lives. That's spiritual insight, and that's what Paul prays for. When you read the word, do you ask for spiritual insight? Do you ask God and say, hey, I would never say hey to God. Sorry about that. Um, You get my point. Um, But you say, Lord, I need you. Give me eyes to see this text. Help me understand not just what this means, but how I can change my life, how I can change my thinking. So How can I be more like your son? So we've received the spirit, the spirit of God. If you're a believer here, you've received the spirit of God. And that gives you the capacity to appraise the value of the scripture properly. And then to know how to apply it to your lives through the process of meditation and prayer and thinking about how God would have you change your life. So that's spiritual insight. And we need to pray for that. We need to pray for that. So let's look at the first spiritual insight that Paul wants us to see. The first spiritual insight that Paul wants us to see is actually found in verse 18. He says this, the eyes of your heart having been enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling. So let me tell you a story from my childhood. I was a missionary's kid in Japan. And so this was like way back when, when, when you were a missionary, there was no Zoom, there was no easy, like I, call, I literally talked to my grandparents maybe once a year 
right? We shipped stuff in a container and went away for four years. And it was the only thing that I had was those little airmail things that you would write back and forth to people. And I was too little and I didn't do a lot of that. But so Christmas would come around and we would get, we would get the Sears catalog in the mail, right? My mom would have them send it out. And, they would, and, and some, some churches would then say, hey, what do your kids want? And of course, I'm, well, I don't know, maybe seven, eight years old. And I'm flipping through the Sears catalog. Or maybe it was JCPenney, who knows. But anyway, so I'm flipping through it. And guess what I came across? I came across a motorcycle, like a little mini bike. And I was like, mom, I know what I want. I want that mini bike. Now, can you imagine back in the 70s how expensive that would have been to ship to Japan? Put it on a crate even if my parents would have trusted me to have a mini bike at age seven. But, uh, I don't, and I don't understand why. It's completely irrational, but I was convinced that I was going to get a mini bike for Christmas. Okay? Now, was that, is that what you think of when you think of the word hope? Dave, hoping against all hope, hoping against any shot whatsoever that something is going to happen. Is that what you think of when you think of biblical hope? Because that's not what biblical hope is. I call that my Christmas hope. If you, if you think that the word hope in the New Testament is this kind of a wishy, Christmassy hope where, ooh, I hope something happens, and maybe it will, ooh, that's not biblical hope. And that's why the translation that, that the worship team used was such a good translation today, because it said confident expectation. Now, if my parents had told me Dave, you're getting a mini bike for Christmas. Now I have a reason for true biblical hope. Do you see? If, if my parents say, no, you're not going to get it, and I hope anyway, that's not biblical hope. That's just foolishness. And I can't believe how disappointed I was when they kept telling me, no, you're not going to get it. And then Christmas came, and it didn't come. And I didn't understand why. That's what you call learning life the hard way, right? My point is this, though. When Jesus called you and you turned and you repented and you turned to him in faith, you have hope, a confident expectation that God will fulfill his promise to you. Do you believe it? How would our lives be different? How would my life be different? How would your life be different if we believed that? And I mean, really, really, really thought through that and believed it. Would it change your interaction? Would it change your conduct at work? Would you think about that if one of your colleagues asked you to fudge a little bit on some ethics at work? When the Christian life is hard because you're losing out on something in this life because of your faithfulness to Jesus, would this text inform that for you? Let me challenge you folks, because I'm going to try to do it too. I challenge you to just take an hour, just take an hour sometime this week and see and just meditate and pray and think about what it means to truly have your hope set on Jesus and the hope that he gives you because of his calling you. And just pray through it, think through it, journal through it if that helps, and just see what might happen if you 
really gains spiritual insight into what it means to know the hope of his calling. Because that's what Paul's asking God to give us. A deep spiritual insight into what it means to know, not hope in the Christmas sense, but hope in the biblical sense, to know that we have something coming down the road and what we can trust God to fulfill that. So that's the first insight that Paul prays for. The second insight, it was the first one is understanding our confidence. The second insight is understanding Jesus' joy in us. And that's a really cumbersome wording. Jesus' joy in us. All right, so I, I was almost disappointed. I, I say this tongue in cheek, but I was almost disappointed by the, the translation that our worship team used because they gave away my big point. So some translations or well, the translation they used that they used made it abundantly clear and you couldn't misunderstand the meaning of the second point of insight. But a lot of translations are a little more literal and so sometimes people misread them. And I, I'll be honest, I spent probably most of my life misreading this point of spiritual insight. Because if you misread it, it almost sounds as if what Paul is praying for is for you to understand your glorious inheritance. Because this is what he says. He says this. So that you might know what is the hope of his calling and what is the riches of the glory of, the, of his inheritance in the saints. So if you're not careful, you can actually read that and go, oh, we have this glorious inheritance. But that's actually not what the text says. The text actually flips that. And I, I think it's extremely powerful. And this is what he says, that we might know what is the glorious, let me get the specific wording here. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? When he says his inheritance, who's doing the inheriting here? Jesus. It's not our inheritance in Jesus. It's Jesus' inheritance in the saints. So who's doing the inheriting and what is he inheriting? Yes. Whoever said that. Amen. He is the one who is inheriting and he's inheriting us. And we're called glorious. I see myself... I don't feel glorious. But when we see Jesus and we're transformed into his likeness, we are going to be his glorious inheritance. Is that not amazing? I, I challenge you, ponder that one for an hour. Now, I'm going to do something very dangerous, and I'm going to use the word self-esteem. Right? So self-esteem is one of those very dangerous words to talk about because it's, it's defined in many, many ways. And when it's defined really poorly, it's awful. It's basically self-love to the max. But if we understand self-esteem in a more biblical way, that is to say our understanding our position in Christ and understanding how God perceives us and that affects how we think about ourselves... That's a good definition of self-esteem. So that's the self-esteem I'm talking about. I can't read this text and think that any Christian should have a low self-esteem. 
in the biblical sense of the word. Why? Your Christ's glorious inheritance. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? I look at myself in the mirror and I don't feel glorious. Someday, I'm going to be transformed into his image and I am going to be his glorious inheritance. You know, we have a lot of people that work with Royal Family Kids and if you hear them talk about those children, most of them come from backgrounds where they don't feel much love and they don't have, in the biblical sense of the word, any kind of a self-esteem. Why? Because they've been beaten down, they've been abused, they've been mistreated. And so one of the things that I'm told that Royal Family Kids tries to do is show each one of those children that they are loved and they are special and they have a place, right? So much so that when they bring the kids in on the bus, correct me if I'm wrong, the counselors all they run alongside the bus and when they come off each one of those children has their name written one person waiting for them with their name so that they can feel loved is that amazing we have it better than that the fact that jesus would care one iota about dave shoemaker fill your own name in there the fact that your savior would care one iota about you better make you feel loved. I know a lot of us growing up, we had our struggles. It's easy to be in high school or middle school and feel picked on and abused and teased and feel unloved. In Jesus, you have a person who thinks you are going to be his glorious inheritance. Think about that for a moment. Tell me that doesn't want to make you serve him with your whole life. His glorious inheritance in the saints. Look what he says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Thinking about what I just talked about, how does that change your understanding of Hebrews 12 too? Look what he says. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, if God and the Holy Spirit, and the, God the Father and the God the Holy Spirit were the joy, he didn't need to go to the cross. In other words, when Jesus went to the cross, it was for something that that cross was going to accomplish. And that's to him a joy. So even though he knew he was going to suffer, Jesus said, for the joy that I know is coming on the other side of this, that's us, folks. Jesus thought of us when he was dying as a joy. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. What an incredible Incredible truth. Challenge you to just think about that. 
and spend a little bit of time praying through that and asking God to give you deep, deep spiritual insight into significance of that. Now, um, if you note in your Bible, verse 18 and 19, uh, excuse me, just verse 18, the first of the three insights is listed. So 19 through 23 is the third insight. We're not going to get to that today. I realized that about 10 minutes into the message. So guess what? We're going to extend this into a two-parter, and we're going to be able to go through verses 19 through 25, uh, 3 next week. So let's bring this home. Let's bring this home. If you're here today and you're a believer, and in your mind, you think of yourself as a little worm. Now, I, I get that we need to understand that we're still sinners. But if you think of yourself as this measly little worm that God doesn't care about, we need to fix that. C.S. Lewis says something really interesting. He said, if a person living in this time period, in, in not this time period, but in this life, not in the next, were to see a believer transformed into the image of the sun, they would be tempted to worship them. Because we're going to be so glorious. You see in the Bible all these times where, where a person sees an angel, right? And what, what do they often do? They drop to their knees and they start to worship. And what does the angel say? No, no, no. Up, 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 up. I'm not God. You worship God. You and I someday are going to be transformed into the image of the sun. And we are going to be so glorious that people now would be tempted to worship up. And guess what we would say? No, 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 no. Get up, get up, get up, get up. Praise to God. We have a future hope that is guaranteed. So if you're tempted to bail, don't. Stick with it. Run the race. Finish the marathon. It's worth it on the other end. It's worth it past the finish line. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Frankly, we're just blown away by these truths. Lord, give us the eyes to see and truly give us the heart to understand, to ponder, and obey. I pray this in Jesus' name.